0: Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I am so thrilled uh, to be here today with uh, Mr. Bob Chapman. He is the CEO of Barry Weimiller. He is voted number three CEO in the world, CEO in the world by Inc. Magazine, top 10 CEOs in the world by International Business Times. His, the case study of his business, which we'll get into in depth, uh, is a Harvard uh, best, se- best uh, case study bestseller. Uh, and normally his book, business books, sell around 5,000, but uh, the book he co authored with uh, also a, a former guest on the show, Raj Sisodia, Everybody Matters, um, sold 80,000 books. Um, and it's been translated into seven languages. I mean, you are a phenomenon and, and, and a big personal inspiration to me. Bob, welcome to the show.
1: Good to be here. Appreciate the chance to share a message with your global audience. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so we should bring people in then like the, the, the starting point for this, you know, what, what was the, the realization for you? What was the, the pivotal moment when you discovered that, that everybody matters and that's, that's where your focus should be as a CEO? I would,
1: say, I would say that the pivotal moment for me that seems to resonate in every part of society I speak is the day I realized that all 12,000 people that are part of our organization around the world are not engineers, accountants, production workers, labor. They're somebody's precious child that's been placed in our care. And that's prior to that day, the lens through which I saw our 12,000 people were they were a function for my success. I needed an engineer, I needed an accountant, I needed a sales executive. I needed them for my success. That day when I realized the transformational experience for me, when all of a sudden I realized that all 80,000 people are not functions for my success. There's somebody's precious child that was brought into this world with the hopes of those parents that that child would be who they're intended to be. And I would have them in my care for 40 hours a week and have a profound impact on them. The other thing I think and what made me realize, which I think I'd want your audience to realize is it? I was never taught, never heard, never read that the way I would run my business would affect people's marriage or their relationship with their kids or their health. And what we realized in this journey since that transformational event is, and the CDC said this, the person you report to at work is more important to your health than your family doctor. And when we teach people to transform from being a manager to a leader, and again, a manager is somebody who manipulates people for his or her success. And a leader is somebody who sees those people in their span of care as some precious child and wants to and does everything they can do to give them a chance to be who they're intended to be. And, and in those experiences, you know, we've realized when we teach them how to be a leader now, which is listening, recognition, celebration, culture of service, of the feedback, which really amazes me, 95% of the feedback when we teach them to be leaders is how it affects their marriage and their relationship with their children, okay? And when you think about that, as business is a powerful force for good in the world, if you realize when we put people in leadership positions, we need to make sure they have the skills now to be a leader, not just they were a good accountant, so we're going to have them run the accounting department. That we make sure that we give them the skills to be a leader now, to take their professional skills, combine them with their leadership skills, so that those people in their Hispanic care have a chance to contribute their gifts and go home each night knowing they matter. And you know that is, that is what I hope your audience gets out of this dialogue, is that we, as leaders in the world, have a chance to profoundly heal the brokenness if we simply learn to care about the people we have the privilege of leading. And it's not about being nice any more than parenting. It's about being nice. It's about making sure that those people in your care have a grounded sense of hope for the future and go home each night feeling valued, not only for their own career, but for the men and women on the right and left of them at the job. If everybody does their role well, together we can create a good future together. So it's a team sport, not an individual sport where we can play it together and, and, and have a chance to express our gifts and go home each night and have a better relationship with our spouse. And, and remember, our kids learn more from our behavior than our words. And so a more loving relationship at home means kids are going to look and, and have a better chance themselves of, of emulating that when they experience the same opportunity. So that's kind of the key message.
0: Brilliant. Okay, and there's a, there's a ton in that that you know I'm sure we'll get into. Um, and but can you talk us through this this transformational event? Because you know I, I've read the book and I was kind of struck by this wasn't always your perspective, right? And and you you came to this moment. So can you just talk us through that, the background, what happened, and and how things started to shift?
1: Well, you know, I have a very traditional education. I got a degree in accounting. And don't ask me why I decided to be accountant. The greatest compliment somebody ever gave me is I can't believe you're an accountant. So I, my, my background, I, I got an accounting degree from Indiana and I went to Michigan, got an MBA and then I got a job at Pricewaterhouse. So I have a very traditional business education and it's about numbers and marketing and uh, strategy. It was not about caring. OK. As I say, I took management classes, got a management degree, and I got a job in management. So I thought I was supposed to manage people. Okay, now I always say to my audience, name anybody in your life you can manage. Name anybody in your life that wants to be managed. You know, what we need is leaders, coaches and mentors, people. But, you know, we use these words in business that are so broken. okay, and they lead to and encourage broken behavior. So I was never taught. To inspire the people I, that I had the privilege of leading, I was never taught to care for them. So, my first half of my career, I stepped into a, a family business that was pretty challenged in 1969, leaving Pricewaterhouse. And I deployed the skills I was taught. You know, it's all about organic growth and profitability and, uh, and share price growth. And I played that game well. You know, I, I had to transform a. Um, pretty much broken hundred year old family business was 18 million at the time my dad died. Uh, And I did it through acquisitions, you know, so I began because I'm not an engineer, I can't invent products. So to date we've done about 130 acquisitions around the world. We've got about 12,000 team members and I'll say this for the benefit of your audience, our share price, even though we're privately held, our share price, because we have a, a way of valuing our stock that emulates the market. So anyway, we have a, a benchmark that has gone up 15% a year, compounded for 25 years. Okay. Uh, Warren Buffett, Bircher, Hathaway, and that same time. It's just under 10%. So I only say that to, to validate that you can create economic value and human value in harmony. Okay. So again, my transformation occurred about 15 years ago when a young man Again, very traditional business acquisition, you know, laying people off, right-sizing, downsizing, cutting costs, you know, all the things were taught in business school. A young man asked me a a question that really caught me off guard. And somebody who didn't know me, because somebody who knows me would not, he said, what is my greatest fear? And I had to think a minute and I said, you know, I think my greatest fear is that I was blessed with a leadership vision that could change the world through the power of business, and it would die with me. And I got up the next morning after that dinner, and I said, okay, we need, we need to create disciples like religions do that will carry this beyond my time, because this is the way that we were called to live and work together where we genuinely cared for each other, okay? And now we, so that transformation, where right, we decided to move from kind of just being a nice guy evolving to a nice leadership model to being more purposeful. Okay. Uh, It's interesting. I think your audience will appreciate this. So Harvard wrote a case study about six, seven years ago on our culture. Um, And I was invited up to, to be at a class where they were introducing our case to like 160 global executives that were in for a special program. So they, The night before they studied our case, they came into the class. They invited me to sit in, not to participate, just to sit in and watch it. And they got into discussion of our culture, our strategy. And at the end of it, uh, the professor, Jan Rifkin, said, is Barry Weimler successful because of its culture or its strategy, which is more important? And they debated about another 10 minutes, and then they voted. Seventy-five percent voted it was our culture there was the foundation of our success. And Jan Riff, I had never thought about it. I'd never thought about that question. Uh, and so Jan looked over at me and said, Bob, would you want to react to that? So I stood up without an ounce of forethought. And I said, I understand why you think it's our culture because this case study is about our culture. But the foundation of our success is our business strategy. The culture is what allows that business strategy to be realized, okay? So I use the analogy, if Ferrari designs the perfect high-performance racing engine, I mean perfect design, unless you put a high-octane premium fuel into that, that engine will not perform to its potential. So I said our business model is the engine and, and our culture is the high-octane fuel that allows that engine to perform to its potential. So as business leaders, we not only have to think about the way we treat those people in our span of care, okay? But we gotta, we gotta have a business model, which is what gives people a sense of confidence in the future. It is gonna give those people the opportunity to share their gifts and go home each night, not worrying about being laid off or downsized or shut down. And so it's a combination of a, a, a robust business model and a culture that, that allows that business model to come alive. And that is, that's the story behind our 15% of your compound growth and our share price. And again, I would say to you, that's the biggest thing. Sometimes when we go lay off people or downsize or right size, it's, a, it's our failure. We, our business model failed. We hurt people as a result of it, okay? And so, again, I think that transformation of it's all about creating share value because success is money, power, and position, right? And true success has nothing to do with money, power, and position. Is living life fully in service of others, okay? Yeah. And so I would say to you that that was the biggest transformation for me to go from seeing organic growth and share price growth, and, and which I was able to achieve in my career. But I realized that our, the real focus, uh, uh, again, I'll add I was interviewed by Washington University professors for a couple of hours, organizational development professors. And after the end of the interview, they looked at me and said, you're the first CEO we've ever talked to that never talked about your product. I said, "Huh? I think I've been talking about our product for the last two hours. It is not, you know, I will not go to my grave proud of the machinery we built for major corporations. I will go to my grave proud of the people who designed and built that machinery. And that caught them completely off guard because we define most uh, of companies as our product, is our foundation. To me, our business model that gives a chance for people to realize their gifts is our responsibility. And again, parenting and leadership. I, I, I will tell you, I learned more about leadership, trying to be a parent of six kids. And I did go into business school because leadership and parenting are identical. What is parenting? The stewardship of these precious lives that come into our families through birth, adoption, or second marriage that we all take seriously. What is leadership? The stewardship of these precious lives who walk into our building every day and simply want to know they matter. And as leaders, we get a chance to let them know they matter and we could heal the brokenness we feel in the world right now. If we had the gifts to do that, a solid business model and then a culture where we challenge people to share their gifts together to create a better future for each other.
0: Right. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, am I'm, I'm really intrigued then in, in your personal initiative, init- the first stages of your transition, right? So you have this dinner, this guy's asking you what your biggest fear is. You realize you can, you know, there's this chance you'll go to your grave without having this vision fulfilled. Like w- how does, how does Bob sh- start showing up differently? Right. Cause you're, you're a CEO before that conversation and after like, what are the first signs, what are the first things you start to change in how you, you lead?
1: Well, the first thing that, you know, which was really amazing is when you flip the lens of seeing people as the function for your success and you see people as your purpose. Okay. And I'll just remind you, Simon Sinek has a great expression. He said in the military, we honor those who give of themselves in service of others. said, and in business, we give bonuses to people who sacrifice others in service of themselves. And he basically says, if we can teach our military leaders their primary responsibilities, the men and women under their command, why can't we teach business leaders their primary responsibilities, the men and women under their command? And the answer is we can. We are. And that is our model. So. If, when you flip that lens, seriously, when you stop looking at people as a good accountant, a good engineer, a good production worker, you know, et cetera, and you look at them as somebody's precious child, your son or daughter, your brother or sister, are, it is a standard of care, treat them no less than you'd like to be treated, no less than you'd like your son or daughter treated, Okay. And that changes everything. When you Again, it's that lens. That is how you show up different. The lens through which you see your role, when it changes, everything else changes. And you think, oh my God. And that way of thinking affects everything you do. Because now you're not thinking about margin and EBITDA and organic growth. You're thinking about, am I creating a future for the people that I have the privilege of leading so that they can go home at night know that they have a steady income so they can buy a home, bring children into this world and pursue their life dreams as part of an organization that cares about them. Again, it's just astounding to me if, if, if we had five hours for this interview, the stories I would tell you of how people feel when they're part of an organization that cares about them is unbelievable. So again, my view is business could be the most powerful good in the world. If we simply learn to care about the people and care is not about sending a note on a birthday, caring is making sure we have built a good business model that will give people a sense of security and safety as best we can Uh, uh, and, and making sure that we engage them, their hearts and their hands fully. Uh, to embrace this model and working for each other, not just for your own career and your own promotion, but knowing that the way you do your job is going to dramatically affect the future of Bill and Mary are on either side of you, who depend upon you to play your position well, just like a sports team. Play your position well for the benefit of others, and you will be fine. You'll be part of a winning team. So it really changes everything when you, again, it's it's amazing. You just flip the lens from what I was taught to seeing people as your purpose. Okay. And success is, is the way we touch the lives of others. That is success, not the amount of money or wealth or organic growth we achieve, but the way we touch the lives of others that could heal so much brokenness in families and communities that we're trying to have nonprofits uh, uh, give to. I always say the, the greatest act of charity is not the checks we write to great noble causes, the greatest act of charity is how we treat the people. We have the privilege of leading and interacting with daily.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I'm really visualizing that, that, that flipping the script. So you're starting to ask, ask yourself different questions of the people across the table from you, right? It's not like, how can you help me get to this goal? It's how can I contribute to your life? Is it, is it something like that? And you, and are you kind of, are you training your brain to ask yourself different questions of the well, people didn't around have you? I to train
1: my brain. It just, It flipped. I mean, you don't even have to train yourself to care. (laughs) You know, the good news. Let me tell you the good news. We know in this uh, uh, COVID situation how uh, contagious these viruses are. Okay, the beauty is caring, we have found out, is equally contagious. Okay, I intended to start off by sending you home feeling fulfilled. What I didn't realize is when I treated you with respect and dignity and genuinely cared about you sharing your gifts and sending them fulfilled, you started caring about others because we released in you the ability to care for others, which is a natural ability we have. It's tamped down by uh, success of money, power, and position and using people. But when you start caring about people, it becomes contagious, which is the beauty of this, okay? It's the one thing that's contagious. So I would say to you, and, and let me tell you how it manifests itself, what, what people talk the most about. When we hit the 0809 economic crisis, which was unprecedented in, in most parts of the world, but certainly in America it was unprecedented. Overnight, just you know, like the financial institutions and companies, General Electric was falling apart, Bank of America was falling apart. Because their business model, again, I always say when Ford builds a new truck, they, they drive it into the worst terrain and the worst condition to see how it holds up. Well, when you design a business model, drive it into 08, 09 and see how it holds up. Well, our share price went up 11% that year and we let nobody go despite orders dropping by 30% and we made it through without hurting people. And prior to this transformation, this reversal of my lens... When 08-09 happened and our orders dropped by 30%, we would have done what I was taught to do, what everybody does. Well, it's not, it's not personal, but we got to let 30% of our people go. But when I when this econo- when this economic shock, shock shock hit, I was sitting in a hotel room in Italy and I thought, oh my God. I remember 30% drop in our orders. My traditional taught learned. Experienced behavior was well, we need to let some people go, like everybody else did. Okay, but because of our guiding principle of leadership, the document we created, which is the foundation of our culture, which has a the golden rule is you know we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. And I've been prophesizing that around the world in our companies. I said, if we let people go in this economic crisis, we are going to hurt people badly. And I said, we can't do that. What are our. So, it, for the first time in my life, that different lens was being tested in the worst economic shock that any of today, any of said experienced. And I said, well, what if we, what would a caring family do in an economic crisis? They'd all pitch in and help each other.
0: What about so, your favorite quotes
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so we, we went to everybody and said, look, what if everybody takes a month off without pay? Okay, take it when you want it so you can have quality time with your parents, your family, your friends. You know, but if we all take a month off without pay, we'll get through what we believe this challenge is going to be without hurting anybody. And I emailed back to America from my Italian hotel and said, put together a plan to announce this uh, as soon as I get back in a couple of days. By the time I landed, my team did a phenomenal job of articulating the message and saying, as of next month, everybody's going to take, you know, a month off without pay whenever you want, and we're going to get through this together. The reaction was unbelievable, okay, because people went from fear, oh, I'm going to get laid off, is the company going to make it, Our orders have dropped, there's no work, to, oh my God, we're going to be okay. And the beauty is... People were doing this for each other. You could look at Bill and Mary on either side of you and said, I'm going to do this because it's going to help you. You're not going to lose your job. Okay. And then we had people uh, who had, I'll call it more advanced in age and income, who would go up to a young person who taking a month off was going to be a real hardship and said, I'll take your weeks so you don't have to. I mean, the acts of generosity were unbelievable. We got through that without the anxiety and depression because if you know you're going to have one month less pay, you can adjust for it. It's hard to adjust for a lot lasting, the loss of your salary when you've got a family to support, a home, education, a community. So that that really was the test of our culture, and we came out of it with a stronger culture where people saw the way we reacted and not in the traditional approach that I'd been taught and I'd experienced. And uh, that's probably the most talked about manifestation of our culture. We got through the worst economic crisis of any of our times without hurting the very people that we had the privilege of leading.
0: Right. Right. And, and so, so for you, this transition was something that just came automatically. You say you didn't have to train yourself to ask different questions. There was just a kind of flip and you started operating in this way. But obviously a big part of what you do now is help other leaders to take on this, this stance, shall we say. Like, What do you find helps in, in having them make the same transition that you made?
1: Well, first of all, as a leader... My, my primary responsibility is to give those people in my span of care a grounded sense of hope for the future. So I, I, gotta, I have to constantly be sharing a message of where we're going and why we're going there and why we get there, we will take you to a better place. So that's my first responsibility, okay? Then we've got it. So I don't expect everybody in my company to, to develop a vision. I, I would say their piece of the puzzle that comes together that creates value is important for them to recognize mm-hmm. But when they feel when they feel that we are not going to use people to make numbers, so, you know, laying off. I mean, I know a major corporation. They said, you know, for in a quarter that analysts think we're going to make a billion and we're not. If we got to lay off people to make the number, you got to lay off people to make the numbers. In other words, people are the sacrifice for the failure of our performance. OK, or the imperfection of our performance. And our issues start with the care of people. So. The interesting thing is when we decided we needed to create a university to transform managers into leaders, the beauty is it was, a, it was a whiteboard. There was no classes established to create disciples of truly even leadership. And the brilliance of this team that came together, this eclectic, incredibly talented young team, it still astounds me. The first thing they just determined if we're going to transform managers into leaders is we need to teach them empathetic listening. And my reaction was, What? We're going to teach. We're going to teach people how to listen. We know how to listen. And my team said, Bob, we're going to teach people how to listen. So they ignored my objection, developed a three-day class and probably and implemented a three-day class on empathetic listening, which if you had named a thousand things, it wouldn't have been on my list of things you would do to transform people. But my incredibly talented team did. So, uh, like three months later, I'm in our Minneapolis operation, and a young lady who runs our human resource team walks up to me and said, "Mr. Chapman, I just took your listening class at Barry Wimberly University." I said, "Great! What was it like?" I mean, I had no idea. And she said, it, "It changed my life." I said, "It changed your life." We taught a class on listening. She said, "Yes, I now raised my two-year-old daughter." And I thought, "Oh my God, what have we got here?" And I started having these listening sessions where I go around the country and people took our classes. And I was amazed. People didn't say I ran a better accounting department, better finance department, a better marketing department. They said, my marriage is better. And my relationship with my kids are better as a result of these classes. Now we were, why? Because again, management and leadership, parenting and leadership is identical. It's caring for the people, that are in your life, span of care, whether they're your kids or somebody else's kids. Okay. The standard of care is identical. And the second thing, which so empathetic listening is the most profound thing we teach to be a leader, okay. Not listening to judge, not listening to debate, but listening to understand which validates the people that you're talking to. It's the greatest act of caring is to listen with empathy, not judgment or to debate. And the second thing, again, and this is, you know, Cynthia and I raised six kids trying to be a good parent and, you know, kind of with no real path to follow other than, gee, we're going to try. I learned that if you don't compliment your kids five times more than you suggest things they could do better, it's difficult for them. So we brought that as the second foundation course, recognition and celebration. How do you let people know they matter and thoughtful? timely, proportional ways, you know, not just a card on their birthday or their 10 year anniversary, but just in the cadence of your business, letting people know, and it's called shining light in your organization, looking for the goodness, holding it up and saying thank you, because most of us, you know, the typical expression is I got 10 things right and I never heard a word. I got one thing wrong and I got my ass chewed out. Okay. Mm. So we started teaching people how to recognize the goodness in others. And it was unbelievable, these acts of recognition and the joy it brought to everybody to see Mary or Bill recognize for what they did in service of others. And people told us it was the most significant achievement of their life to be recognized by their peers. We don't teach recognition and celebration in our business schools, okay? We don't teach empathetic listening in our business schools. We teach management, okay? The achievement of financial results to reward the shareholders for their faith in us, okay? And again, as I said, we now teach people how to care for the people they have the privilege of leading. I would share with you and your audience, nobody at Harvard, nobody at uh, a McKinsey, nobody. Nobody debates what I just said to you. Nobody. It's hmm. just so far from the way we teach and the way we practice that again, nobody debates. There's the moon out there, but they don't know how to get there. Okay, so I would say to you that to transform the brokenness in the world to a world where you would want part of it, or your family members, or your friends, we need to learn to be leaders with the skills and courage to care for the people we have the privilege of leading, to heal the brokenness, that poverty of dignity we have in the world. It's not about paying people more and better benefits. That's nothing to do with it. It's about letting them know that they matter and feel valued so they can go home and treat those people and behave in our communities from the foundation that they feel cared for so they feel released, inspired to care for others as they've been cared for themselves
0: right and that, that dignity is such a an you know, important word here it just it just brings to mind have you, have you ever come across the book the continuum the continuum concept no 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 i brought it up on my with my last guest actually by, written by a woman called uh, Judith Laidloff. and she would studied a tribe in uh, in uh, the the amazon and 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 she was studying their child rearing right, extraordinary levels of caring amongst the child rearing and and yeah, what we would now cool kind of attachment parenting, but, but a huge amount of love and attention on the child and uh, an acknowledgement of the child. And she, she observed it and the difference between you know her, her experience of child rearing in, in the States. And what she noticed about the, the adults in these streams, they had extraordinary levels of dignity. And she, she recalls a story of watching some women go to, to wash their clothes, clothes down by the stream. And she said, you would have thought they were like catwalk models, right? the way they're walking. And yet, by kind of Western standards, they're living in abject poverty. But the level of dignity and, and self-esteem that these people had as a result, as she saw it, of their child rearing, rearing was extraordinary. And so it's interesting you touch on that, that by, by operating in this way, we restore people's dignity to a, to a new level. Is, we is that right? validate their dignity. Yeah, we validate yeah. Their dignity.
1: Yeah, you know, we have a world where money, power, and position is the definition of success. Okay, money, power, and position. And, you know, to amplify that, uh, a gentleman, a re- very financially successful and really a good gentleman, heard my speak, flew out to talk to me. And I said, what are you really proud of in your life? He was probably 55. He said, well, I'm known for my $120 million gift to my alma mater. But I'm, what I'm proud of is my minority student athletic scholarship program. I said, that's wonderful. How many students can you help a year? He said five or six. So that's wonderful. I said, I'm just curious, how many people are in your organizations in the world? He said 100,000. I said, so you're telling me you really care about these five or six minority students. You can help create scholarships. Which is great. But you don't care about the 100,000 people whose life is in your hand every day? And this really fine, genuine gentleman looked at me and said, I never thought about that. Okay. And so we have a world where we use people for financial success, and then we write checks to charity, and we, and we celebrate those people for their generosity. And so that's, you know, in terms of dignity, it really starts not in giving money away to, to wonderful organizations. We have all these nonprofits to fix the brokenness we create in the world, Okay you know if we if people feel cared for the amount of anxiety depression suicide everything with health remember people who love who feel cared for love their job have 40% fewer health care claims so we you know when i talk to ceos i'll say to them you're all worried about the health care crisis you are the problem 74% of all illnesses are chronic the biggest cause of chronic illness is stress and the biggest cause of stress is work and Jeffrey Pfeiffer at Stanford said he wrote a, a book called Dying, Dying for a Paycheck, and he doesn't mean anxious to get it. He means we are killing, he estimates, 120,000 people a year, just killing, much less causing serious injury to killing from work-related stress. So I see this definition of success as money, power, and position as the root cause, okay, Because I know a lot of people with money, power, and position who are miserable, okay? Those ladies walking down to the river to wash their clothes have dignity, okay? Dignity creates a sense of meaning and purpose and and seeing other people. Money, power, and position creates none of that, okay? Uh, And so until we change in our education system, the purpose is the purpose to get a Good education to get a good job, to get a good job, to make a lot of money so you can be happy, or is the purpose of education is for you to use your God-given talents fully in service of others, which is true success. So until we change education, we're going to be putting Band-Aids on cancer. Because again, you just gave the example of dignity. How do we teach in our education system, which we're working on? So, you know, we're working with a prominent private school in Charlotte, North Carolina, from kindergarten through 12th grade on how do we teach these kids to care for each other and to be part of a caring school community where the person maybe who serves them food in the lunchroom or sweeps the floor is just as valued as the students or the teachers or the principals. And then we're working with Fordham University with the Global Jesuit Network to transform business education. We actually have 20 professors coming together next week to reimagine Business education to create leaders with the skills and courage to care for others. So until we change education, we're not going to fix the issues we face in this world, which is what I call a me-centric world, where we need a we-centric world, okay? It's not all about me. It's all about we, that we genuinely care for each other. And I think that's a natural instinct that will blossom out of feeling cared for themselves.
0: Right, right. And then very encouraging that you're starting to get some traction with the business professors. Yeah, because it strikes me that there are, there are you know, you've had this message for, 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 a, for a long time. There, are Ricardo Semler and Maverick, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but there have been others, right, with a similar message. And we, we kind of understand how this works and we have done for decades. And yet, business schools don't seem to have shifted one inch in this direction. It's like, it's so like changing the Titanic.
1: It's about changing yeah. the Titanic, okay? Because remember, I asked, I, I had a privilege of speaking to university presidents at Brown University a few years ago. And I went up to Harvard at and asked, I said, what was the purpose of education in America? And they said, well, the founding fathers felt we needed informed citizenry so we can have a democracy. OK. But then our Industrial Revolution barons came along, Henry Ford, the Rockefellers, et cetera, Carnegie's. Uh, and the Industrial Revolution created what did it create? It created jobs good paying jobs compared to working on the farm or working. And so it took people out of poverty, gave them incomes. Communities were started around them. But so our universities became skills factories because these industrial revolution leaders needed skills. They needed engineers, accountants, machinists, you know, lawyers, et cetera. All the skills to run an organization, They didn't say they wanted leaders. They wanted engineers, accountants. And so what we did, we came together in collective organizations without the skills to bring these people together with meaning and purpose and send them home feeling fulfilled. We've forgotten one key ingredient that they didn't think of. When we come together as organizations, so we created economic wealth, but we not, did not create human wealth. So that, that's the issue that we face, OK? We, we had a system that was built upon economic wealth, not human wealth. And until we change that, the brokenness we feel in the world, which is pretty serious, is you know significant. So again, the Industrial Revolution, we thought was great because it created wealth to improve education, improve the standard of living, create communities, create prosperity. And we thought, isn't that, you know, peace and prosperity, isn't that our goal? Whoops, we had peace and prosperity and we had the highest level of depression, and anxiety we've ever had. Why? Why? People had good jobs. They were making good money. You know, you could change jobs, improve it because people didn't feel cared for we we forgot the foundation of coming together as groups which is to care for others and we can teach that in education in our university that's what we teach the first job of being a leader is to care for the people you have the privilege of leading and that does not mean sending birthday cards or asking you know it means making sure that they feel valued challenge and they have a future in your care. Okay. As best you can determine that. Okay. And we could dramatically change and heal the world. Okay. Because again, if you li- listen to all the feedback we get, when we teach this in our university, it would give you a tremendous sense of hope that we can teach these fundamental human skills. They will release the human potential and will align with good business models and create, you know, meaningful jobs with a good future. So. Again, the industrial revolution fell short on one huge aspect, which is leadership, collective leadership of organizations. We didn't teach that. We taught management, okay, which is the manipulation of people for the organizational goals instead of leadership, which is the stewardship of the lives entrusted to you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we see that in our culture and especially in the business culture, we celebrate the economists, right? right. They get the front, they get the front pages. We don't, we're not celebrating you know, with all due to respect to Raj Sasodia, right, who is a leading light and thinker in this area of human development, he's not celebrated in the same way as a, as a leading economist might be.
1: Because it's about money, power, and position, okay? Uh, Raj is extremely brilliant in sharing with you the value of the Industrial Revolution, the impact it made, capitalism made. But the problem is, again, it It was about economic wealth. Okay, it it took people out of poverty and gave them jobs, but it didn't give them meaning. Okay, it gave them income. And we thought income would provide for you to be happy. And it turns out, whoops, we forgot one key ingredient. We didn't teach people how to care for the people they would have the privilege of leading. And it didn't teach us how to inspire people. Uh, It taught us to manage people and layoffs and downsizing, right-sizing, you know, so... It's and and when I was in business school, we studied general electrics where they would, you know, neutron jack, we'd lay off people, right size, downsize, improve earnings, make numbers happen, cut costs, you know. It was never about human dignity. And that is, and again, I, I hope your listeners get one point. We certainly have poverty in this world that we need to address, but the bigger issues is the poverty of dignity. Even in advanced societies, we have a lot of anxiety and depression, record levels of anxiety and depression. If we send these people home feeling used, not cared for, they're not going to have the marriage that they could have if they felt valued. We know that for a fact. And their kids are going to witness parents who come home demoralized, you know, laid off, downsized, degraded in the way they're treated. OK, can't hardly wait to retire. And even in America, we have TGIF. Thank God, it's Friday. Okay. I imagine a day where we have TGIM. Thank goodness it's Monday. Get away from the kids, the chores, and get back to a group of people where I really feel valued. So that's my (laughs) aspiration.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, yeah, absolutely, you know, love, love that vision. I'm guessing there are going to be some people listening to this and say, okay, well, this is all very well, Bob, but, you know, my CEO doesn't get any of this. You know, I'm stuck where I'm at in my organization, you know, how can, I, how can I make my organization um, maximize its human wealth, be a kinder place to work in? Do I, do I just jump ship and try and find no. an organization like Barry Weimiller, or do I try and do something where I'm at?
1: Well, I, you know, I, I gave this presentation to a major corporation's global group of uh, operational leaders uh, in Chicago a few years ago. And after my talk, one of the gentlemen raised his hand, so this was a $20 billion division of a larger multi-billion dollar company. And he said, Mr. Chapman, what if corporate doesn't endorse this? Kind of the same question you asked me. And nobody ever asked me that, I didn't have any prepared thoughts, so I said to him, you remind me of the Wizard of Oz. Now I think I saw the Wizard of Oz once when I was a kid, but that came to my mind, I said, The scarecrow, the tin man, the lion were all looking for something they didn't think they had. They finally get to the wizard in this journey to the wizard, and it turns out it's an old man behind a kind of a a screen with a little puppy, and he looked at them and said, you have a heart, you have a brain, okay? Just use them. I would say to you, it begins with how do you treat the people that you have? I know that you are not going to be treated well, probably In most case, Remember, 88% of all people feel they work for a company they don't care about. And, uh, you know, so and 65% of all people would give up a salary increase if they could fire their boss. So changing jobs is probably, you know, is 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 a failed effort to find a new leader that cares. OK, uh, so I would say to you what, what you can do is, number one, my my TED talk, my TEDx talk. We did an animated version and send them on. Look at it. See if it resonates with your heart and soul. OK, get your team together and talk about it. You know, it costs nothing. Do a book study and say and, and begin quietly. I mean, I dealt with a CEO of a $50 billion company who wanted to embrace this. Even the CEO of a $50 billion company said to me, what do I do, Bob, if my board doesn't endorse this or support it? And I said, be very careful because how you present it to your board will determine their support, okay? So he was sensitive. They did see it as a strategic advantage, okay? So not a human advantage, a strategic advantage. So we're in an economic-driven world, and boards don't have the ability to talk about culture. Even your CEO or your department head has not been taught this, that does not mean that you can't begin the journey yourself. Okay. And, and you can read the book. You can look at the cliff notes. You know, you can, you can begin yourself to try to embrace this. Okay. Looking at the people in your span of care as somebody's precious child, are you treating them with dignity and respect? We have various our Chapman and Co leadership Institute has got various online Events you can go to uh, through, you know, virtually. So I would say think about yourself. We can all be better stewards of the people in our span of care, even if we move forward an inch. And if everybody started to, pretty soon our, our leaders of our department say, What are you doing? All of a sudden we're attracting the right kind of people, you're achieving goals. So don't use the excuse that your CEO or your department head or your business unit manager doesn't endorse it. Embrace it as best you can. Do it thoughtfully so that, you know, you're not drawing inappropriate attention to it and somebody kind of reacts to it. Caring for people, you don't need permission to do, okay? But caring is not just about sending them a note on their birthday. It is listening to them with empathy, making sure that your department is designed You know, has a good business model in in the position you play in the company and then embracing the ideas of truly human leadership, which is about caring for the people you have the privilege of leading and make sure that those people in your care know that they matter. So and the feedback you'll get from the people will fill your heart with a sense of joy you can't even imagine.
0: Right. Yeah. No, that, that that makes a lot of sense, and there is an awful lot of pe- that, that that people can do just within their immediate yes. span of control. And even if you if you even if you you're, you don't manage anybody, right? You could just start being kinder to your peers, listening better, celebrating people's achievement. Everything exactly, you've spoken
1: exactly. about it begins. It begins right there.
0: And is there anything just that just intrigued me as you spoke there on the on the business model, which obviously you emphasised when you were, you know, you, you were speaking to those uh, professors or the the students recently? Is, is there anything? that we've talked about that pertains to design of business model that, you know, you would like to, to bring out.
1: Yeah. Uh, I honestly did not learn this in my education, um, but I studied a company called Emerson electric company run by a guy named Jack Chuck Knight, who built from 2 billion to 24 billion or something like that. A uh, legendary guy like Jack Welch in terms of shareholder value, creating uh, A legend. Every building in St. Louis is named after the Knight Center. Okay, and as a young man, I was exposed to this company and and its financial success, and I studied them. and The key thing I learned from them was the word balance. Okay, and I was learning this as I was trying to transform this historic company into a company with a better future. So I would say to you, the biggest thing I learned in terms of business model design is don't design a business model depending on one technology, one customer base, one market, because if something changes, you can't do anything about it. So when I designed our business model, I designed it with a dramatic balance of markets, customers, technology. So if anyone would change, we would be okay. Okay, that word balance. Okay, we need that in our life. You know, if you if you design your life from one relationship and something happens to it, you're devastated. So, don't build your life on one pillar. Don't build your business on one pillar. So t- today, I could show you a pie chart of the diversity of clients, markets, technology that we serve. And we have a lot of recurring revenue. We have a lot of consulting revenue, which all have different behavior patterns. So when you stand back and look at your model design, you know, it is robust. And again, it was tested in 08, 09, when General Electric fell apart, that I studied when I was in college. And to this day, it has created this opportunity for balance, the people who put their faith in us, the investors, the bankers, and our team members and our customers, we can serve them well because we're not overly dependent upon anyone market, anyone technology, anyone customers. Should something change, we are going to have to hurt people. So again, there's no expression, you need to get the right people on the bus. I say it's not about getting the right people on the bus. It's about building a safe bus, which is your business model. And then having drivers who know where they're going and how to get there safely and then anybody that gets on the bus is going to be fine. So never forget your business model design and making sure you anticipate things that could happen so that the people in your care have a reasonable chance, okay, of, of a safe future so they can raise their family, go home at night, fit not worrying about getting downsized, right size, get laid off this quarter because we didn't make the numbers, you know, et cetera.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And how that would then inform your business model. You're not trying to uh, maximize profits in the short term, you know, to make the check and the bonus. It's how do we create a balanced business model that's sustainable, that's going to continue to uh, you know have a reasonable chance, as you point out. As
1: Simon said, which I love, if we can teach military leaders their their you know, officers he'd last, it's your your primary response to is minimum care. Why can't we teach business leaders? And the answer is we can. And what I'm sharing with you is not a theory. I'm sharing with you what we evolved to that we're actually doing and the actual performance of the company. Okay. so we're a billion now. And and again, we operate in France, Italy, China, uh, India. We operate all over the world. These are universal truths. Everybody in the world simply wants to know they matter. Okay. And they want to feel they're part of an organization, that stands for something more than just quarterly earnings, okay? But human dignity. So we send people home so we can have better marriages, raise better kids from better households, and we don't have to fix all this anxiety and depression we're experiencing in the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Well, okay, Bob. It feels like we've had a, a, a thorough exploration of your, your philosophy and, and some wonderful stories you've shared. I, yeah, I've, I've got faith this is going to inspire people. Um, yeah. And, and, and so wonderful to meet you, right? Uh, it's yeah. like, I'm meeting my hero right now. and This is a case of <laughs> being more than impressed by one of my heroes. So, yeah.
1: Well, you know, I need people like you that have the audience to share this in the world beyond my time. My greatest concern is this blessing I was given would die with me. Okay. And I need disciples like you who can share and shape this message with audiences. So others will join us in this journey. Where everybody matters.
0: Amen. Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing your time um, and yeah, and your insight and your wisdom and enthusiasm. Right? Yeah, at what I get from you, the vibe is just this enthusiasm. And how many CEOs, you know, have got this level of sort of vibrancy, enthusiasm? Yeah, you know, this stage in their career. I mean, that that if nothing else, is testament to, to the philosophy. Well, I, I would
1: say with you, you know, to, to your audience, I, I'm sure I have an average. And you know, I was an average student. I got an accounting degree, a business degree. And, but what I was blessed with was not a high level of intelligence. I was blessed with an incredibly positive attitude of life. Eternal optimist. I, I have a lot of, I believe I have a lot of common sense. That's allowed me to see things differently than others. And, uh, you know, and creativity, you know, Blending those together with creativity. So we built a business model unlike any others that stood the test of time. You know, it's created human and economic value and harmonies to show you can't. It's not just about treating people nicely. It's about making sure you have a good business model so that people in your span of care go home at night, not worrying about their future lists and knowing that they matter, not just the financial results. It's about people, purpose, and performance. It starts with our responsibility to the people we ask to join us, who put their faith in us, around a purpose that inspires them, and then we have to create value. We can't exist as organizations if we don't create value, human and economic value, okay? So uh, I I really appreciate your interest in the message. I hope your audience uh, embraces it. It's pretty simple when you think about it, simply caring about the people you have the privilege of leading.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks once again. And uh, yeah, we'll put all the things that you've mentioned into the show notes. Uh, encourage people to, you know, this, uh, my camera's not focusing on it, but the book is uh, Everybody Matters. The Extraordinary Power of Caring for Your People, Like Family. Um, yeah, go get the book. Change the world. Okay.
1: <laughs>
0: thanks. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. Bob. Thanks
1: for joining us in this message. I appreciate all it. All right.
0: Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.